Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 927 with Paul Tunerman. You know, you, you, can, you can continue on with the status quo and you can continue to get the same results. Yeah, making a change is risky, you know, but so is staying still in this business. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. Looking to make your life easier? Then Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor targets, and keep your entire team connected. With drag and drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a lot easier. In fact, I haven't come across a restaurant tour using seven shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Restaurant unstoppable listeners get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S.com slash unstoppable to get Three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using seven shifts today. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro and they are launching their first time ever 60 day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60 day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit it more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp i don't need to tell you that it's harder than ever right now to be a restaurateur the cost of goods are going up labor expenses are going up People don't want to work in the industry. Anybody who had experience has, has gone on to different verticals or different industries. And we are just stuck with a lot of people who are very green. And how, how do we increase sales if nobody knows how to sell? Well, you empower them with the right tools. And one tool out there that you need to know about is called S. RV, which stands for Study Restaurant Variety, created by Roger Bodwin from Restaurant Rockstars, a name I'm sure you recognize for his multiple appearances on the show, and his co-founder and co-creator, Zaylin Jacobson, who you'll be working with. This is a tool that will help your team memorize your menu, your uh, your culture, uh, everything, anything you need to train them, your entire training manual is now in an app and accessible anywhere. And really what it is, is an interactive learning tool. And it's a great way to invest in your team and to make them feel valued. There's a lot of data supporting that. This is how the next generation of professionals prefer to learn. So if you need a tool out there to empower your staff, to train your staff, uh, to, to give them the knowledge they need to be sales stars, then check out srvnow.com 
click the link that says request a demo and that will bring you to a page where you fill out your information. The very last field, make sure you let them know that Restaurant Unstoppable sent you their way. They will pay us a commission of $1,500 if you use that link and you you sign up with them. And I just have to say thank you in advance. We're trying to take Restaurant Unstoppable to the next level. And this is one way we can do that by just spreading the word about these tools. And uh, I believe in what they're doing over there. So you're in good hands. Uh, thank you in advance. All right. Do it now. So um, I know it's come as a shock, but I was uh, hanging out in the shipyard, local shipyard, drinking bad captain, thinking about, um, God, I'm going to buy this next boat, and what am I going to name it? And about a six-pack later, I was like, how fucking funny would it be the name of both the bad captain? <laughs> and it really comes down to protocol when you're communicating on the radio. So um, when you're trying to get a bridge open... It's like bridge tender, bridge tender, bridge tender, the sailing vessel bad captain requesting an opening just south of you, proceeding north, uh, should be on, on scene in about five minutes over. And so it's just kind of funny when you think about that. And then when I would check in, when I was on my trip and i check into these foreign com- countries, they'd be like, bad captain, man. <laughs> Does that mean you don't know how to sail? And I said, it's bad as in naughty. And they'd start laughing. <laughs> so uh, We're recording right now. The mic's hot, just so you know. Okay. And, uh, I, think I we won't can, say anything bad then. No. <laughs> I think we can just start with that. Uh, and if you're listening to this, a little untraditional introduction here at Restaurant Stoppable, the voice you're hearing is Paul Tunerman, repeat guest on the show. And I should say, with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest back on the show for a third Time, Paul Tunerman, and I think you you like to say you can, you can can a Tunerman, but you can't. I'm, you can you can uh, uh, you can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish. <laughs> tune like a man. That. So this is uh, like I said, Paul's third time on. Just the call show. me Paul. Eric. It's okay. <laughs> and um, the first time was like episode like one hundred and thirty something. Yeah, uh, sorry, yeah, hundred. I think it was one thirty nine. One thirty nine. Uh, that was the first time we had Paul on the show. Where were you in two thousand sixteen? What was going on? I, you know, I think I probably had just retired from raising canes. Yeah, uh, I, I can't even remember how I first connected with you. Or do you remember if I reached out to you? Not a, connected us? not a clue. But yeah. it had to have been post uh, post raising canes, and then uh, the next time was episode five eighteen. Uh, when I had gone, left retirement again, and had started uh, working for Dat Dog as the yeah. CEO, and that yeah. was in August of 2018. Yeah, and that was one of my first. That was like when I first started to take out on the road. You were one of my first. Yeah, side you were couch surfing. Yeah, and yeah. Basically, what I said, I was like, "Hey, like, if you have a couch and you want me to come to your city, like, I will come to your city." And I think I was on my way to Austin, Texas, for the first time. Yeah. Um. Uh, I stopped in New Orleans on the way. I had you on the show. I can't remember who else I connected with when I was out there. It's it's all blurring together now, man. It is. Yeah. Um, And it was awesome. Yeah. We just just have this rapport. I love talking to you. Since then, we've stayed in touch. I've actually seen you like three times in the past three months, I want to say. I know. I swear to God, we just saw each other like two weeks ago in New York. Exactly. (laughs) And we were were hanging out like a month ago before that. Yeah. Uh, if you guys remember listening, uh, I had the CEO of Stickies on the show. Yeah, um, John Sherman. John Sherman, thank you very much. Uh, John was amazing. Great episode. Go check that out. I think that was episode 509 if you want to check out that episode. And when I was talking to John Sherman, I had no idea 
that you had joined their team at that time. Yeah. And during the interview, I quoted you and I use you as a reference as this guy who helped scale Raising Canes and how your approach to go to college towns was like a big part of your strategy in scaling that brand and that you should reach out to Paul is what I said to him. And he gave me this look in the middle of the interview. Like I, he's like, what are the odds? And I couldn't figure it out in the moment. And then after the recording, he's like, you mentioned Paul Tunerman uh, during our interview. He's like, I just hired him. I was like, are you shitting me? I was like, what are the odds? I mentioned him. You just hired him. Yeah. Uh, and they got a great team member in you. What is your official title over at? So, Stickies? you know, they call me executive vice president. Um, once again, you know, um, where many many hats yeah. uh, you know kind of helping John and that team um, get the wheels on that organization and get it ready uh, ready for growth and uh, you know I've spent uh, God I've spent a lot a lot of my career in um, working starting out with small companies and and uh, you know helping leaving them get to uh, the next place. helping them get to the next level and leaving and moving on yeah and uh, it just uh, it was really strange in the way it happened. Um, you know, we'll talk about this later, but I was getting ready to depart on my 4,000 nautical mile sail, and I got a phone call from um, one of their board members. And the gentleman called me and said, hey, you know, we're looking to add to the board. You know, it's really interesting, your background with that dog and raising canes, and can we chat? So we chatted for, I don't know, about five or six times. I mean, I'm sailing through the Caribbean talking to this guy. And he's like, listen, you know, he said, you should talk to John. And so I'm like, all right, you know, well, when I get back to the real world and sort of, you know, dust myself off and stuff, I'll connect with John and we'll, we'll, we'll chat. So I met with John and uh, initially I was just going to do some consulting with him. And uh, after he and I spent a week together, he's like, man, why don't you just join the team? I was like, dude, I'd love to, but I'm not moving to New York City. <laughs> so so uh, he was cool. He was very gracious about it. So we worked out an arrangement. So I'm kind of 10 days on, 10 days off um, and helping them. You know, it's just, it's, uh, you know, I tell them all the time, I'm like, don't feel bad about it. I mean, like all small organizations go through this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've, it's, uh, you've, uh, growth is painful. And if you don't prepare for it, um, it can become even more painful. Yeah. And the last thing you want to do is scale your problems. Yeah. And that's, I think, going to be a lot of what we discussed today is scaling and, and what that looks like. Um, and I'm excited for that. But I think, we're, what have we told the listeners? Okay. So 2015, 14, it was when, the, when you first came on the show. That's how we got connected. We reconnected in 2018. That's the first one we met in person. At that time, you were at Dat Dog in New Orleans. Yep. Uh, you were there until when? Uh, I left in uh, 2020, March 2020. of 2020, right after the uh, we cashed the first uh, PPP check. Okay. So uh, I don't blame you for wanting to get away from the industry. Well, you know, it was uh, that was my thing. You know, they uh, we we consolidated the business, uh, closed up a bunch of shops, got down to three restaurants right there in New Orleans, all within five miles of each other. Um, but you're late. helping them scale. So was it because of the pandemic that you said now is not the time? Yeah, so we, we basically went in the other direction. And it was really, Eric, is really about hunkering down. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it kind of worked out. I mean, obviously, we were all at that time two weeks to flatten a curve. Um, and uh, so it was like, listen, you don't need a CEO. You don't need these people. You don't need those people. You know, I'll help you apply for your PPP loan. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll right-size the organization and we'll 
tighten up the hatches and you know good luck call me if you need anything and so i left in late march of 2020 and um resumed my retirement and got back to focusing on this incredible sailing trip should we mention we're sitting on a yacht yeah. <laughs> I know. If you're, if you're watching the video portion of this, we are on a yacht right now. Yeah. This isn't a small restaurant. <laughs> this is a yacht. Uh, this is the boat that Paul took on his 4,000 uh, mile journey throughout the Caribbean. Yeah. And we'll get into that later, a little teaser of, of that story. Of, of, that was your dream. You got to live your dream. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's something I've uh, always wanted to do. You know, I've uh, wanted to be that crotchy old man on a boat. And I had gone down to the Caribbean a lot of times and I would uh, rent a boat and I would take groups of people sailing and you know one day I'm sure there was rum involved I was sitting on uh, sitting on the beach on Anagata Island which is part of the British Virgin Islands and looking out I was like god damn it one of these days can I say that I'm look, okay yeah. one of these days I'm gonna I'm gonna sail my own boat here and so started you know sort of figuring it out and you know I'm um when it comes to things like this, I, you know, I like to take risks, but I like to take calculated risks. Yeah. And this was something that I really wanted to do on my own. And um, so I sat down and spent about two years sorting it out and figuring out, well, what's the best way to get down there? And, you know, there's really two routes. You either sail a quarter of the way to Africa and hang a right and go south or you bebop down the chain of islands uh, in the Bahamas. And that's called the Thorny Pass because you're sailing uh, basically upwind. And so it's kind of, you know, it's not a comfortable ride to begin with. Mm-hmm. And second of all, uh, when you're sailing in the Bahamas, you need a boat with a really shallow draft. Um, and so I went out and bought a big boat with a deep draft. Yeah. And so I had to go out. Um, so we went down, went from here. I took my nephew, who'd never sailed before in his life. He's 21, just graduated from college, hadn't a clue what he was going to do. So I was like, well, come on. I said, you know, perfect, perfect time to join your uncle on the sailing trip. And um, so our shakedown cruise was from uh, past Christiana, Mississippi to Panama City Beach, Florida. And then we launched the trip. We went from there to Key West. Uh, we stopped in Marathon Key and had uh, Thanksgiving with his family. And the day, Saturday after Thanksgiving, uh, we took off. We got into the Gulf Stream, went around the south of uh, south end of Florida, up the East Coast, across the top of the Bahamian Bank, and out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And we hung right. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't stop until we got to Puerto Rico. Actually, I take it back. We did make a, a, a short pit stop in uh, Turks and Caicos, a uh, place I never have to go back to again. Uh, <laughs> Why is that? What happened at Turks Oh, well, it, you know, it took us 36 hours to check in and nine hours to check out, and we were only there for 48. Wow. Yeah. It's just because... Of- the bureaucracy and, and you know, if you... it Don't ever sail during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these Caribbean islands were, honestly, we were just trying to figure it out, um, you know, how to handle it. And, you know, you would point out the obvious that, hey, you know... I've just been out in the Atlantic Ocean for 14 <laughs> days by myself. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think I'm good. Now, it's the rest of you motherfuckers I'm worried about, you know? But they don't they don't understand that. Um, so um, it was, you know, a, that was a big part of it. And then, you know, it's the island life. You know, it's, it's uh, customs, comma, 
and immigrations. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, the bureaucracy and then, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's who's, uh, who do you give the money to as the yeah. right person and yeah. to make things happen. And so, so it was a good learning curve for me. Yeah. yeah. I've heard stories. I mean, before flying commercially as a commercial pilot, I worked for a company where I basically did logistics and like customs and setting up all that stuff for all the pilots so they could just take off and land. And the horror stories I've heard of just people abusing the system down there. Yeah. That's kind of sad. Yeah. But, uh, so, I mean, this was your dream. I think it's really important for the listeners to understand that, um, this was a, like your life dream. This is what yeah. you always wanted to do. You bust Ever your since ass. I was a little kid. Yeah. And you retired and you, this is Paul Tunerman living out his childhood dream. Yeah. I think that's really, I just want to congratulate you publicly on being able to do that. Not everybody gets to do that. Not everybody gets to, to survive their career and to, to do it with, you know, the, the means to, to live that lifestyle, to, to execute this vision, this dream. And I just want to publicly congratulate you yeah. for, for doing that, for, for coming full circle, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Eric, I appreciate that, and thank you. And you know, I would uh, I'd strongly encourage you know your listeners to if they have a if they have a a BHOG like that, a you know big, hairy, audacious goal, and a, a you know a lifelong dream they want to pursue. Um, no time like the present. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's one of the things that we figured out is that when we took off, and you know, there's a lot of uh, similarities to life and business. Um, you know, when we took off, we just had to figure it out. And, um, you know, you would think that, you know, think about it, you know, our time frame between connecting with planet earth, you know, like getting a weather, uh, getting a weather forecast or, or anything was, you know, 14 days. Well, you know, the weatherman can't get what's right going on tomorrow. And so you're out there and you just kind of have to roll with it you know and you have to figure it out as 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 it comes along and that was you know it's kind of like with life you know you gotta you gotta take those punches and roll with it same thing with business you know you got to take your punches roll with it and do your best um and that's all you can all you can really ask for so was it all you dreamed i feel like like i feel like people have like these visions these dreams and they hold them on a pedestal their whole life and they finally get to do it was it was it what you had imagined to be uh, it was different, very different. How was it different? Um, so, you know, I kind of envisioned a lot of uh, rum drinks and umbrellas <laughs> and sitting on the beach um, and, uh, you know, eating spiny tail lobsters. And, you know, the vast majority of it was hard work. Mm. Um, the personal growth I had not anticipated. How did you grow personally? Um, well, kind of a neat thing. You know, first of all, you notice I have my prayer flags on the boat. Yeah. We picked those up along the way because we needed them. <laughs> and uh, there are times, you know, Eric, where you, your, inner, your inner Buddhist comes out. And, <laughs> you know, you start being grateful for the very small things in life. And one of the things that we would do, and I really, I did this, I, I started this kind of as a reason to have a beer at the end of every day. And then I realized that there was importance to it. And we would have what was called captain's call. And so at the end of every day, it didn't matter how bad it was. I mean, we were, we were in a gale with like 40 knot winds and, you know, 15 foot seas, 20 foot seas, just getting our rear end kicked. And we're sitting around and there were, uh, there were two things you had to talk about. What was your highlight and what was your low light? So, you know, think about it. You're in the middle of a shitstorm, okay? And the boat's coming apart. You're getting beat to death. It's dark. It's raining. It's lightning. 
um, you're not really sure you know where you're going. And, um, you know, frankly, we were pretty scared of those times. I mean, Paulo, young man, was uh, behind the helm, crying, uh, <laughs> sobbing, you know. Come on, as I'm, why are you telling the world? Why are you telling no, the world? No, because he'll tell you about this. <laughs> you know, I'm up front trying to help him direct the boat into the waves so we don't get rolled over. Yeah. And, um, you know, we have captain's call and we talk about the positive. Everybody had to come up with the positive. So if you take the time and there's this, uh, there's this Buddhist saying, and it talks about under- appreciating the miracle of a small flower and the impact that that has on your whole life. And so in those moments when we took the time to appreciate a, something positive that had happened, all the bad stuff sort of just melted away. And it was kind of a really neat coping mechanism. And so we did that all the way up until our very last day. And then we, uh, we actually filmed our last captain's call where we talked a lot about the trip and the things that we you know, really took from it and whatnot. So what I didn't, under, what I didn't expect was the personal growth out of it. Uh, so you know. was the personal growth the ability to appreciate the small things in the garage? What was your small thing? What was it that you appreciated? Oh, sometimes it was just waking up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we had, um, you know, it was kind of interesting. We went, you know, both extremes. There were days when we were, when we went across the top of the Bahamian Bank, there was, we spent about a day and a half with absolutely no wind, um, which was okay because we, you know, stood on the deck and we watched the uh, dolphins play in the water. Um, and then one time we were, um, north of puerto rico and at 1 a.m the coast guard called us and they're like what are y'all doing out there (laughs) and we're like sailing and they're like isn't it really bad out there we're like yeah (laughs) i'm like why you coming to get us (laughs) you know they're like well if we do you have to get lead i'm not leaving the boat behind i'm gonna ride this sucker out you know and so um you don't really worry about running into much out there though right it's pretty uh, open it's for the most part open and you know i've um your sails were down you weren't you were just kind of we were running with uh with a stay sail and a severely reefed uh uh, main and and so a stay sail is just a smaller uh, foresail, and then a reef main is where you just shrink your main, so it's just basically like the size of a handkerchief. Okay, and because um, you don't need much wind to keep it when it's blowing right when direction. it's blowing forty knots. Yeah, and all you're trying to do is just keep it straight, keep it straight, and not roll the boat over. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, but you know, I mean, that particular night we were going zero knots. <laughs> you know, and so it was one of those things. Is like this, this is never going to end, is it? And we actually rolled into San Juan Harbor at three a.m. in the middle of a Bad Bunny concert. And so here we'd been out to sea for days. We had just, you know, I have probably hadn't slept in three. Okay, I'm like beat, exhausted. We roll in. You know, you're you're navigating. So the the entrance in San Juan is surrounded by these giant rocks and stuff, and so you're trying not to run into those. And all of a sudden, this is like, oomp, 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 you know, <laughs> and the lasers and everything. And you're like, for a moment, you're like, am I hallucinating? <laughs> it's is been this three really days. going on? <laughs> I mean, I'm tired as shit. <laughs> and my nephew's like, oh, this is bad, bunny. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm like, who's Bad Bunny? And he's like, oh, he's like this guy from Puerto Rico. He was like a bag boy. And he's like super famous in South Florida. It's like, okay, I'm, like, I'm good. I just want to go to bed, please. <laughs> so it was kind of cool. Uh, but we met some awesome people along the way. And then the other thing, and you and I probably have never really talked about this. You know, my wife's a school teacher. And um, she's, uh, you know, she's kind of a, a daredevil in her own right. She's always chosen challenging opportunities. And so um, we've spent a lot of time trying to help kids that come from um, not so good neighborhoods how to read yeah and um, you know people talk about you know things and I said listen I said come back to me when you've gone into a project and you've cleared um, you know the basketball court off of all of the drug dealers and stuff like that and uh, set up chairs and invited all the little kids out teach them to read I said, my wife did that just last Wednesday. And uh, she does stuff like that. And so one of the things we did was we took a bunch of books with, cases of books with us to hand out as we sailed through the islands. And, you know, one of the things that I didn't know um, was that the, um, uh, the lower class people tend to only speak their native language. So, you know, it's, it's not until you get to the middle and upper class that they tend to speak their native language and English. And so here I am sailing around with cases of books uh, in English. But you would see, you know, you'd, you'd run into a kid and I would always carry them in my backpack. And I'd be like, hey, 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 here you go. And you give them a book and their eyes would light up and they would leave. And then 10 minutes later, there'd be 12 more <laughs> coming over the hill. And one of the things I realized was that books are the universal language. Mm. Um, and so it was really, really awesome to be able to do that. And, you know, I mean, we talk, I have a, a, a little brother, gentleman named Caden. He and his uh, uh, five siblings live with his great-grandmother. And he's right at that age where he's either going to be a contributor or not uh, to this world. And so we're trying to, you know, trying to save him, trying to make sure he stays on the straight and narrow and, um, you know, it's kind of just, you know, you, you, you find these people and um, society has failed them. The system has failed them. Their parents have failed them. Their only hope is themselves. Yeah. And if they can't read and write, they're screwed. Yeah. And so we, uh, we put a big emphasis on, on learning how to read. Mm-hmm. And uh, we figure if you can read, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's kind of what we've been doing. And um, one of the things that I did on the trip, and it was uh, extremely rewarding. So it was just part of that kind of personal growth yeah, man. of uh, doing that. And so. I know there's one more part of the story. And I know people who are listening to this are like, what the frig, man? We came here to learn about restaurants. I know. But the, insp- the, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform. And um, really what I'm trying to do for the listeners right now is to inspire. And like you said, if you have a big, hairy, audacious goal, you know, like write it down do what you gotta do bust your ass uh, i think you're an example that you this industry can provide abundance if you if you do absolutely work, dude you know and you're living your dream uh, this is a beautiful boat uh you're living a beautiful re- semi-retirement because retirement, you're yeah. back into it. we'll get into that later <laughs> yeah uh, but there is more to the story because you guys were, were coming when you're i know how the story ends was really kind of is this did you touch on that when you're talking about the waves when you're north of puerto rico yeah is that the same point in your journey when you were headed back and you just made it into port like you were oh yeah weren't you racing a hurricane back then you just make it we were racing a huge storm back well the other thing was is when we uh on our way home um 
So, and this may be the story that you're thinking of. We were, so we went from um, Puerto Rico to Key West nonstop. And so we went around the, the south, the, the southern end of Puerto Rico up through the Mona Passage, which is uh, historic for uh, just being the wrong place to sail, um, across the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Cuba, into Key West. And then we were hanging out in Key West and looking for a weather window to go home. And I would get up early in the morning, go to the cafe at the marina and get a coffee and sit there and open up my iPad and look at the weather. And one morning I looked at the weather and I was like, crap. I'm like, we literally got like hours to go because if we don't go now, we're going to be stuck again. You're, you're trying to forecast out a week, yeah. you know, so you're trying to understand. Um, is that weather written in shorthand, like aviation, like C, like METARs and CTAFs? Does that sound familiar yeah, to you? Um, a lot of wind barbs. And uh, high and low pressure ridges, okay. uh, yeah. So probably similar. If I would, I yeah. would I mean, venture to say, aviation stem from yeah. boating. You know, yeah. Oh yeah, vice versa. And yeah. you know, listen, all I, I know a lot of great sailors that work for Delta. So uh, and uh, yeah, so it was. Uh, you know, I called Apollo. I'm like, dude, wake up. I'm like, we're leaving. He's like, okay. I'm like, dude, no, no, no. Wake, get the boat ready. We're leaving like now. I'm yeah. paying the tab. And um, so we did. We left. And we rolled in here, and literally we rolled in, tied up the boat, and then the skies opened up, and for like a week it did nothing but storm, and we had made it just in time. But, you know, talk about, you know, kind of going back to something you touched on, Eric, is, you know, I think there are a lot of parallels between that trip and sailing and business, you know. And so, you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot of lessons out there. And, you know, when you're... 250 300 miles from you know nearest land trust me nobody's going to come save you and um if you're uh, if you're an ins- uh, aspiring restaurateur and you have mortgaged your last nickel and you're in debt to everybody and their brother it's the same situation failure is not an option you got to figure it out um and you just you got to do it, yeah. and it's it. Uh, t- trust me, there's there, there are times where we would sit in an island and be like, "Man, how awesome would it be to just fly home first class yeah. and send somebody else to get this boat?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, whose idea was it to bring down here in the first place? But you got to bring it back. You know, yeah. you, you, that's part of the, that. That was part of the promise, and so you know, I think that a lot about that. Uh, there's a lot of similarities in work. Um, with work, and then the other thing is the is the people and the tools that you you take along with you. So um, I had a, a dear friend of mine who talked about uh, when we were in the military, and you talked about going to war and making sure that you had the right people and the right tools. And it's very similar in business, and it's very similar in sailing. Uh, you want to make sure you take the right people with your sailing, and you want to make sure you have the right to- tools with you. Uh, same in business. You know, I think we. Uh, I was talking to a gentleman. A, couple weeks ago I was doing an interview and um, we were talking about you know general managers and I was like yeah man I'm like listen if you're anything like me you've got a you got a half a dozen people in your back pocket that you've always sworn to God that if you ever went back to war again you take them with you you know and um, I said so you know if you know anybody out there that you you know want to be part of your team let us know yeah so um you know, very similar. And then making sure you have all the right tools. You know, we were, uh, I spent about a year and a half looking for this boat. Um, was very particular about what I wanted. Um, and, you know, in 20, 
2008, they wrote an article about this boat, and they they said the one word describes this boat, reassuring. And um, when you so, say this boat, do you mean this model or this boat? This model. Okay. So now now they've only built uh, a hand. So this is number 66. And what I, is this boat? This is a Hylus 46. It's okay. a 2007 Hylus 46. It was built in uh, Queen Lawn Shipyard in Taiwan. Um, it's uh, It's got a cult following. Um, it's got a it's reputation a boat, for being able to take anywhere in the world and do anything with it. Um, you know, people will go out and listen. I mean, I've sailed this in, you know, 40, 50 knot winds, um, you know, at multiply 50 times 1.15. It's pretty fast. Um, you know, then drive down the highway and stick your head out the window of your car. You'll realize exactly <laughs> how fast that is. Uh, so, um, yeah, so, you know, just... It, and the boat did. I mean, the boat was did an incredible job. We had the right tools. Yeah. And kind of jumping back, when we were did that captain's call, when we were north of Puerto Rico getting our rear ends handed to us, that was Paulo, my nephew's, that was his one... Um, that was his one positive thing yeah. was he was grateful for being on this boat and it was truly reassuring. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for sharing that story, man. Yeah. And um, two things came to my mind at the very end of that story. And when you're talking about being 200 miles away from the closest piece of land, um, that sometimes you need to get in those super freaking uncomfortable positions to grow sometimes. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things I'm going through right now. I'm getting uncomfortable trying to grow my team slightly overextending myself with the, the, the just having uh, faith and, you know, and believing in the mission and what I'm trying to do. And sometimes you got to take that leap and he, and things won't start to happen until you take the leap. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you know, you, the parallel, like you said, there's a lot of parallels and your business is your boat trip, right? Like get uncomfortable because that's the only way you're going to evolve and grow is by getting uncomfortable and forcing that growth and taking that risk and you will grow from it. And even if you fail, you're still going to come out the other end better. And when you go back out the second time, you'll, you'll be stronger. The other thing is that it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And you have this vision about where you were going to end up. Your, your dream vacation was cruising around the Caribbean, sipping rum drinks on the beach, relaxing, and yeah. you still had the time of your life, but it's not what you expect. Exactly. So, so be in the moment and appreciate the now and just because it's going to go by fast and, yeah. and, and live intentionally and, yep. and, and live, live your dream now. You yep. know, uh, what, what goes through your mind as I say that? Well, you know, I, it, you know, two things. I want to talk about taking risk because um, I'm kind of going through this right now um, in having some conversation with team members that uh, kind of need to need to make a change. You know, you you can you can continue on with the status quo, and you can continue to get the same results. And yeah, making a change is risky, you know, but so is staying still in this business. And so you kind of have to, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, especially younger people in the industry to have these conversations with them and see them to sort of being hesitant to take this blind next step and having enough confidence in themselves and the, their team to know that, Hey, you know, we're going to roll the dice. We're going to make this next step. And even if it doesn't turn out like we think it's gonna, We've got all the right people in the room. We'll figure this out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's where, you know, surrounding yourself with 
the right people or, you know, the right crew is important. Um, you know, you want to make sure you have the right folks in the room so you can take those big, bold moves. And we recently have taken some, some pretty significant bold moves at Stickies and everybody was kind of, you know, cause for 10 years, they've really not done anything yeah. like that. And, um, you know, let's, the outcome's let's, been let's great. Shelf that because I want to come back to the bull moves. But I did want to talk about you started getting into your story about the cruise. And I just kind of wanted to let that unfold. So I knew it was a sure. great story. But I was hoping to talk about the the time from say 2018 to 2020 uh, during your time with that dog. Sure, uh, and what you learned, what that experience was, how that business evolved. Are there any lessons to pull from that time? Uh, that you think our listeners can benefit from? Yeah, you know, it was a, it was an interesting situation. It was one of those where I got a phone call and uh, it was like, "Hey, I got your number from somebody who gave me your, you know, who knows somebody." And um, you know, we've got this small little hot dog concept, and uh, we're bleeding to death. And um, you know, they said you're the guy to straighten it out. I was like, "All right," you know. And actually, at that time, I was working on making this trip because I was supposed to make this trip a few years earlier. And um, so I said, you know, oh, this guy's a friend of mine. I was like, you know, I'll take a look at it. So I spent 30 days looking at it. And kind of the first three weeks, I just, you know, I'd go in, sit down at the bar, order a drink, order a hot dog, start talking to the crew. And I'd go from restaurant to restaurant and just, you know, kind of blend in. And then finally, on my fourth week, I had him introduce me to the gentleman who was running the company at that time. And he got involved, and I got some some more information and stuff, and I put this presentation together. I said, "Listen, I said, here's the great thing: you got a great brand, you got great people, you got great food. So your financials are horrible, but here's it's kind of a 36 month roadmap, and you all can figure it out." And it was kind of funny because at that time, and I can talk about this now, is I had done some financial benchmarks for him, so I had put their financials up on the screen. And they're like, well, those aren't our financials. And I was like, well, don't tell anybody because they're in your FDD, their franchise disclosure document. Okay. I said, I'm pretty sure it's a felony to falsify this information (laughs) and sell franchises. So let's just clean this up. And so we did. You know, it was was a mess. Uh, But it goes back to being, um, you know, authentic and candid in that we were able to kind of clean that mess up and go around and and, uh, unravel all of those deals. Um, And then we kind of just focused on the basics. You know, I walked into um, a corporate office that had 15 people. Okay. Now, we had had four restaurants built and a fifth one on the drawing board. Okay. We had 15 people in the corporate office. I was like, Jesus, you know, okay. So um, I'm like, all right. So I'm going around and I spent, uh, I spent uh, an hour with everybody that had some sort of management, even if you were a shift manager, shift manager on up. I'd sit down with you for about an hour, an hour and a half, and I'd have these conversations about, tell me about yourself, where you're from, what'd you do, how long you've been here, what have you done for us, what do you want to do, what's your end game, kind of a thing. And early on, some um, 17-year-old kid looked at me and says, you know where you work, right? I was like, well, that dog. He's like, no, 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 you know where you work. I'm like, yeah, that dog. He's like, no, 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 you work in the ivory tower. And that broke my heart. And I realized that the culture was all messed up. And, you know, because I like the term restaurant support office. 
So then about two weeks later, I'm looking at some financials and I'm looking at the discounts and promotions and it's like, God, this is a huge number for what, what is this corporate discount? And so, you know, I send text the, the bookkeeper a note and I said, what's this number? She said, oh, well, well, if you work in the corporate office, you can eat and drink in any of the restaurants with anybody you want for free. Okay. Now this number was two months into the year was 14 grand. I, I wanted Two to months cry. into the year, yeah. 14 grand. Yeah. Wow. And so the next morning I gathered everybody around and I made them sure, I made them understand that the people downstairs were the people that paid our salaries. And that 14 grand was a whole lot of new fryers. And that was the end of that program. Uh, and it really was kind of, you know, it was, it was kind of interesting because nobody argued about it. And they all kind of went along with it. But you really had to take an organization that had created, quote, quote, the ivory tower and break it down and help them understand that the most important person in the organization is that crew member, that hourly employee that shows up every morning and stays until 4.30 a.m. every day. You can't do it without them. You can't do it without them. And the entire organization has to be built to support that person. Yes, and so many times I've seen organizations lose track of that. And what's interesting is that when you start out, when, you're, when, you, when you open up your first restaurant, you, you understand that. You know that that most important person is that crew member. But somewhere along the way, people lose track of that. Where, where why do you think that is? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I still, I'm a, I know this has come as a, as a shock, but I'm a bit of a romantic. And so, you know, I believe that it's possible to still be a billion dollar restaurant company and still be operation centric. And somewhere along the way, we forget that everything in that organization has to evolve around those people in the restaurant. Not the other way around. Yeah. You know, they don't do things for us. We do things for them, you know? It's not like, hey, it's a deadline for you to submit this. I'm sorry. How can I help you get that number? Yeah, man. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's uh, you know, and I think that that's, you know, and that's, you know, where they had somehow got it all twisted up, and we flipped it around. Uh, we were uh, cash flow positive within 12 months. And we did really kind of, you know, I would, I would joke around with friends. I said, I feel like I'm just picking money up off the floor because a lot of it was just, you know, we were buying Coke from a third party. So I picked up the phone and called somebody at Coke USA and said, hey, you know, last year I bought over 4,000 bag in a box. So I just buy them from you. They're 25% cheaper, yeah. you know, French fries. You know, we were buying them street pricing through, you know, one of the national purveyors. It's just like, damn picked up the phone, called somebody at Simplot and said, hey, I want to do contract pricing, you know, another 25% off the top. And so it was just doing these things that you learn to do over time yeah. as you grow up in a small organization that becomes large. You know, you learn these tricks and you learn to be able yeah. to leverage these things. Um, but just you, for a little bit of context real quick, you started, uh, you, I mean, you worked in restaurants before Raising Cane's. Oh, yeah. Raising I grew Cane's, up in restaurants. Yeah. Raising Cane's, I think, is probably safe to say where you really 
progressed the most as a restaurant tour, the, the, the scaling the, the, at that level of restaurant. Yeah. Tour. I mean, listen, at Raising Cane's, I had the opportunity to do amazing, amazing things. I mean, listen, um, you know, I always joke around my high school class voted me most likely to be a felon. I didn't go to college to get this job. I actually just earned it the hard way. Yeah. And, you know, I found myself at Cane's very early on. I think we were at like restaurant 39 and uh, we were trying to figure out how to light the candle and grow the business. And so I got a lot of opportunities to do a bunch of things. And I think, you know, the one thing that I, I still am in disbelief was having the opportunity to build the entire corporation in the Middle East for them. Yeah. And like, where was Raising Cane's when you left? Uh, 317. 317. So 39, 317. Yeah. So for the listeners who did not go back to listen to Paul Turnerman's earlier episodes, that's who we're talking to. That's yeah. what set you up. That's what gave you this business acumen and all the experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Because, you know, I mean, at 39, again, we were a small company. We were, we had just kind of gone through that realization that we had to upgrade our talent. And you know that if we had if we were going to scale, we didn't want to scale our problems. Yeah. Um, and so we were trying to solve our problems early on, and you know we kind of lit that. And then you know we learned a whole lot about franchising, and we learned a whole lot about dealing with franchisees. And you know my thing was is listen, uh, someday those could be our restaurants. So every decision we make together needs to be made in that context. And lo and behold, every Every one of those restaurants, Canes has gone back and bought out all their franchisees. So they literally do own all those restaurants. So thank wow. God we went with that mindset when we worked with those partners to develop that business, that we didn't want them to do anything that would be detrimental. Yeah. Uh, you know, because sometimes I think what happens is people just sell franchises to sell franchises. You know, I've gotten a phone call from the recruiter that says, How's big your role, how big is your Rolodex? I said, yeah. Well, first of all, I said, is Rolodex, is, are they still a thing? Okay. <laughs> and second of all, that's not how I do business and I don't want to be a part of it. Thank you yeah, very much. Have a good you, day. You're literally reminding me of a conversation we just had with Brandon Landry from Walk-Ons. Okay, from yeah. So, and he, their first franchise, he had a team, I think if he said of 30 people and he walked into like this, like, he like because what he knew, and I think this is, some, this is something we're probably going to discuss that before you grow a business this is probably we're getting a little ahead i don't want to get too much into it now but before you grow a business you need to grow like you need to grow the framing like you can't just go out there and start selling franchises for the sake of just profiting like you need to get the cash flow first you need to get the the investors you need to build your c-suite you need to get the framing of that house built before you go before you move move into it absolutely you you, got to build the house before you move to it you can't build it around yourself yeah well you know it's it's interesting because i get the sense that some people feel like they can grow their business far less expensive. So they may have, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine restaurants. And they're like, okay, I'm going to franchise. I'm going to own the world. And, um, cause it'll be super easy and it'll be super cheap. And I'm like, listen, you got to build the same organization for either way, you know? Um, so it's, you know, you're still going to need a really robust training program. And, you know, at nine restaurants, trust me, you may think you have a robust training program, but you don't, you know, if you're going to try and go out there and support, you know, 300 restaurants around the world uh, on a franchise basis. And so, you know, a lot of these things you have to build before you you light that candle. And um, so it's, you know, to me, it's, it's, um, 
it's OPM. It's other people's money. Yeah. Um, so do you franchise so you can grow the business with other people's money? And then what does that look like? And if you look at, again, if you look at what we did with Reason Canes is we grew in all these different parts of the country with our franchise partners. And I always said, you know, I'd much rather have five franchise partners with 50 restaurants than 50 franchise partners with five and each. And Because um, it's about relationships. It's easier to manage fewer relationships. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and then if you've got 50 restaurants, you can afford to build your own infrastructure. So, you know, so these, these organizations, as they ramped up, would quickly bring on CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and they would build a robust structure of their own that then we didn't have to really supplement yeah versus you know our onesie twosies you know i'd call i'll call up our vp of facilities and say hey will you do me a favor you go to you know you go to colorado springs and we look at so-and-so's restaurant and and do a quick assessment because you know he's only got one and he's you know he's actually frying chicken today and we need to get a quote on fixing this restaurant so you know you end up having to put more support into yeah. the smaller partners. Yeah. So before I derailed you, you were talking about that dog. You're talking about how you kind of helped, like what you were doing to to help them, and that, that you learned all these lessons along the way, and that you're applying. I want to give some context to the listeners. Can you get back to your train of thought to where you were there? As yeah. Far as- so you know, it was um, you know, so we kind of you know we right sized the team, and you know, in in all honesty, I, we replaced everybody. And I kind of reached out, and it We're was talking about that dog now. That that dog, record, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I think a perfect example is I went to a bartender. I said, "Listen, I said, uh, can you uh, can you help me cost out all these drink recipes?" She was like, "Sure, sure, sure." The next morning, she showed up with the most beautiful Excel spreadsheet I've seen in my life, and I was just blown away. I looked at her, I'm like, "You are now director of finance and accounting." <laughs> <laughs> And she was like, but I don't want to be. I'm like, that doesn't matter. I'm like, you can still bartend. And she was like, okay. Um, but I went out and really tapped these people. And I looked at at um, sort of their behaviors and their skill sets and their natural talents. Yeah. And so, you know, I found this uh, young lady within the organization. And I said, hey, I says, uh, I want to make you director of marketing. And she's like, well can I think about it? Like, sure, sure. We'll talk tomorrow morning. So next morning she comes into my office and she's crying. I'm like, why are you crying? She's like, well, I'm going to fail. I'm like, Victoria, what makes you think I'm going to let you fail? (laughs) She's like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, listen, Victoria, if you fail, I fail. I'm like, we're in this together. I said, I'm not going to let you fail. I said, but you're, you're going to be great at this. And Victoria was awesome at it. And, um, you know, she was funny because she was just, you know, she was a crew member. And I was like, what's your end game? She's like, one day I want to be the COO of that dog. And I was like, you know what? One day you can be. Uh, now she got married and moved on and lives in, I think, Wisconsin or something. But, um, yeah, no. So it was really just kind of finding these people and plucking them out of the, uh, of the restaurants that I felt like had a natural talent and a tendency to do well in a certain area. And um, by golly, they did. So before we move on, just really distill the in simple, plain, short sentences, the big takeaways of how to, what you did with that dog and what anybody in that position that you described in there kind of like, yeah, that's me a little bit. Like I, I kind of, I kind of relate with that picture you painted of that dog 
before you came in. What were the, the, the things you did in order to turn around? Make sure everybody in the organization understands what's most important. Those People. restaurants, number one. Yeah. Okay. Number two is um, make sure you surround yourselves with the right people. Um, and not all the time, those people don't always come, uh, you know, with fancy resumes and a, and a wealth of talent. Um, you can you can do that. You're really, you know, it's that age old thing, you know, hire for uh, uh, attitude and train for aptitude. Yep. Um, and so it was really doing that. And then I think three is just, you know, focus on uh, focus on the food and make sure. I mean, that's the one thing I'll tell you. We used to do, uh, we would do, I would go into the restaurants and one day I was training in a restaurant and a kid comes up to me and uh, he's like, hey boss, you want to, you want a Vietnamese uh, taco with, you know, wasabi slaw and that, and I'm like, well, I'm like, dude, I'm like, Colin, I'm like, it's not on the menu and I'm not a big advocate of eating somebody else's food in my own restaurant. He's like, no, 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 we make it in the kitchen. I make lunch for everybody on Saturdays. And so it turned out that we had a culture where these kids were playing around in the kitchen and coming up with these things. <coughs> and so we started this color innovation team. And what I would say is like, listen, you know, submit your ideas and we'll use them for LTOs. And we got crazy stuff. I mean, one, one was the bunier. And, you know, I swear these guys. What's, are, what's an LTO? A limited time offering. And it was really kind of our way of finding something to talk about. You know, if you're just serving hot dogs every day, day in and day out, day in and day out, it's hard to find things to talk about. But if you're really focusing on, you know, this culinary experience, then you got to kind of infuse your menu with things that are that are exciting. So Bunier was they would take a uh, hot dog bun and they would cut it up and deep fat fry it and toss it in powder or sugar. Now, I swear to God, you know. I don't know what those kids were doing back there, uh, but it was pretty awesome. But we did all kinds of things. I mean, we did uh, we did a spiff a, uh, a spin on the Big Mac, and uh, it was kind of funny. So we did this. Uh, we called it the Dat Mac, and so we rolled a hamburger in the shape of a hot dog, and we did the special sauce, lettuce, cheese, tomato, pickles, onions, you know, on a hot dog bun. And then we found the McDonald font, and we spelled Dat Mac in the McDonald font. And then I went to the uh, former marketing uh, vice president of marketing for McDonald's. And I said, you know, how much trouble do you think I'm going to get in? It was like, wow, you know, you're pretty ballsy. He said, but you know, the, <laughs> the chances of, of McDonald's figuring it out is probably slim and nil, you know, unless a franchisee, you know, uh, complains. And then they'll just ask you to take it down. I said, well, I'm only going to have it up for like four weeks. So I rolled the dice and we survived. But we would do things like that. We did the Godfather. You know, we did all kinds of di- uh, different things. Uh, we had a lot of fun with it to really just kind of... Um, it's great re- for culture. Reinf- exactly. Yeah. Well, think about it. Now you're this kid, you know, and you've, been pl- you- you've submitted this idea. And now it's on menu boards, you know, throughout the company. Why? Yeah. So why is it good for culture? What, what does that do aside from... I mean, just get into like the, the, the specifics. It, of it tells that people that they can make a difference and they can. And, you know, I think what, you know, what I find is, um, you know, I talk about right now, you know, sometimes we'll have meetings and I'll be like, any questions? You, know, you can ask me anything. Yeah. And it's crickets. And I think what happens is people feel like they can't have an impact. 
so they don't say anything. And so their satisfaction with their job takes a dip, you know, because it's that is just a job. It's not a passion, you know. It's not fun, you know. It's just nine to five or whatever it is. It's a it's the grind, and I think you've got to uh, listen. Nobody comes to this. Nobody comes to this industry for the money. Um, and I can trust, trust me, I can tell you all those people that are coming in the back door, whether it's Raising Cane's, Chipotle Grill, Dat Dog, Stickies, you name it. They're not, you know, they're not coming in for the money, you know, because honestly, we don't pay that well. Um, and even at 15, 20, you know, $25 an hour, it's still not a lot of money mm-hmm. in today's world. Um, and so, you know, if you really want to do, epic things you got to have epic people yeah and you know one way of creating those uh that culture is to make sure that you know they feel like they have a say and they can have an impact uh on the direction of an organization and that they can contribute to the success um and if you can do that um you're going to be way better off oh yeah yeah i mean looking at maslow's hierarchy of needs above you know your physiological needs and you know you're feeling secure right after that is being seen being valued and when you give people an opportunity to contribute and to be seen and to for their creation to literally be seen on the menus across the franchise or across the organization yeah that's so powerful for your own self like just just for your own mental health right yeah. and then beyond that you're also giving people an opportunity to experiment, to grow, to test new things out. And that's another thing that people need is they need to grow. Yeah. And if you're just doing the same thing every day, you're kind of limiting that opportunity for growth. So it's a powerful way to have that special, to have a reoccurring special that just rotate or like when you just give people an opportunity to shine and to, 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 to grow. Yeah. It's just powerful stuff. Um, I think now is a great time to take our first break to take our sponsors. We're going to be right back to talk about uh, your return from your boat trip and then how you came out of retirement again. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. As host of Restaurant Unstoppable, I chat with a lot of restaurateurs. One thing a lot of them have in common, they use Seven Shifts. In fact, Every restaurateur using Seven Shifts that I've come across has great things to say about them. With over 700,000 restaurant pros and counting using it today, they're clearly onto something. So what are you waiting for? Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor costs, and keep your entire team connected with drag and drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, labor compliance, tip management, and more. It makes restaurant work a lot easier. And I bet Every member of your team will get value from it. Whether you're a franchise owner or a chief technology officer, a manager working in front of house or back of house, plus it integrates with other restaurant tech systems you already use like your POS, payroll, and more. That is powerful. As a restaurant unstoppable listener, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months free and join over 30 
thousand restaurants using seven shifts today we're back and we were gonna just get right into what you got going now but you asked to, to share a story yeah before so, we move ahead so you know we'll i wanted that story out. you know i'm a big believer that um you know when you come into a small organization like i had the opportunity to do at that dog for example um that you can find these you know sort of seeds of hope uh and so early on i walked into a restaurant and there was a, a young kid he was setting up the the dress line, you know, it's basically a sandwich board with all these ingredients where, you know, we top the hot dogs and we didn't have many tools back then. Yeah. You know, we didn't have any templates or anything like that. And so I said, Ryan, I says, how, how do you set this up? How do you know how to put what, where? And he said, well, we have 11 signature hot dogs. And so I grouped the ingredients by hot dog and then I put the dry ingredients up front so they don't fall into the wet ingredients. I was like, damn, dude. I'm like, what's your story? He said, well, I graduated. I got a degree in finance from Tulane. He says, but, you know, honestly, man, I smoked a lot of weed. I didn't do an internship, and so I'm here at that dog. I looked at him, and I said, buddy, you have a a wealth of opportunity in the restaurant industry. And within 90 days, he went from being a crew member to being the GM of that restaurant. And then about 60 days later, he was, uh, I made him the GM of our highest volume restaurant on Frenchman Street, which was sort of notorious because, you know, that restaurant would stay open until the sun came up. Uh, we served a whole lot of booze, and there was a lot of shenanigans. And again, he was a kid. And, uh, you know, I said, listen, you know, I pulled him in. I just made some changes uh, in the organization. I said, Ryan, I said, I want, to take, I want you to take over Frenchman. Like, well, you know. Well, if you think I can do it, I can do it. And boom, off he went. And it reminded me of a story that was probably 1990. I worked for a gentleman named uh, Robert Auchenbach. He was uh, the regional vice president. And he had asked me to take over an account. And it was way out of my league, I thought. And he's like, you can do this. And I'm like, okay. And so... You know, I started pounding it out, and what I did is I'd wake up every morning, I'd look in the mirror because I revered Robert Achenbach. I mean, he was he was just a shit man, and uh, I was like, you know, if Bob Achenbach says I can do this job, I must be able to do it. And I'd grab my suitcase, my briefcase, and I'd go to work and I'd do the job, and I did that every morning. And then finally, after about I guess about four or five weeks, I just had to stop telling myself, and I just started doing the job. And so sometimes. Um, it helps to let people know that you believe in them uh, and that you won't let them fail. So, you know, I think about the conversations I had with the Ryans and the Veronicas of the world where, you know, Ryan was like, well, if you think I can do the job, then I must be able to do it. Or, you know, the Victoria's where she's afraid of failing and you have to explain it to her that if she fails, I fail. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I just think it's, it's really, it's, it's really beneficial. And, and um, you know, newsflash, the secret of the sauce is it's the people. Yeah. All right. Listeners, if you're listening to this, when was the last time you let your people know that you believe in them and that they, you know they can do it? Yeah. It's powerful. You know, I challenge you to do that right now. Um, so you leave that dog in 2020, yeah. January 2020, or no, March 2020. March 2020. March 2020. Um, Set them up for success you, for, for You finally COVID. buy your boat. You find your boat. You Got buy your boat. boat. You live your dream. Uh, you survive. I survived, I survived myself. <laughs> you you come back. Uh, what when did you 
come back? When, what, what? So I got back in uh, late March of 2022. Okay. Uh, How long were you on the, the, the water for? I left in uh, early October 2021. Oh. Wait, early October <laughs> 2021. And you got back when? Late March 2022. Okay. That's a nice yeah. trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, it was pretty amazing. Uh, so anyways, so I get back and, you know, I think I started to tell the story about, you know, when I, before I'd left for that trip, one of the board members for Stickies had reached out and said, hey, you know, we'd like, you know, we're looking to put some, maybe a couple people on the board and, you know, really like your background and so can we talk about it? So we did. And, you know, I mean, I have this distinct memory of sitting, uh, sitting underneath an umbrella um, in Virgin Gorda drinking a rum drink, talking with this gentleman about, you know, kind of my philosophy of people and all the good stuff. And um, so finally, he's like, listen, you know, you really need to meet John Sherman. And I was like, okay. I'm like, sounds good. You know, when I get back to the world and, you know, dust things off, we'll, we'll connect. And so John and I connected. And then um, I flew up to New York and spent about five days together um, and just went around and visited all the restaurants and, and hung out together. And, you know, John, John's background is finance. You know, like he's. If you guys didn't catch that episode five oh nine, if you want to yeah. hear John's story, it's amazing. You could just see in his eyes yeah. he loves that concept. Yeah, and uh, it is super, super cool. That sort of urban punk. I don't even know how to describe I it. Mean, Robots yeah, on the wall, yeah. and you know, all uh, kinds of cool stuff. There's nothing. Honestly, there's nothing like it. And uh, I mean, there, there there's. Other chicken finger joints, like you, you yeah, know, there's no secret that those exist. But I think what they do really well is their branding's unique, and um, they put the emphasis. I mean, the chicken fingers are amazing, but they have a lot of diversity in the sauces. Yeah, 18 sauces, and listen, everything is made from scratch in the back of the restaurant, yeah. and we're not, and we're talking like high quality ingredients, like no corners cut, and that really were, you know, that's where I, you know, I feel like the, the differentiator is, is, you know, Raising Cane's introduced the chicken finger to America. And, um, what came first, Raising Cane's or Chick-fil-A? Oh, Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Chick-fil-A just wasn't really a big, they weren't known for their tenders. You what know? were they known for? I mean, that's all they those, had. Those little, uh, those little nuggets. Those nuggets. Yeah. I don't even know what they call them anymore. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just, they weren't, you know, and Cane's, I mean, other than In-N-Out Burger, Cane's was really sort of the only concept out there that focused on a singular protein. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's today, you know, we're talking 25 years later, they still do yeah. five, the same five damn things. And that's kind of a your niche as uh, somebody who comes in and helps. You focus on the concepts that focus on doing one thing really well. Yeah. With that dog, it was hot dogs, raising canes, it was chicken fingers, yeah. and now with stickies. Uh, and that's one of the models I think is going to be really powerful going into the future for so many reasons. I mean, we echo them a lot in the show, but you're putting all of your energy in doing one thing really well. Yep. So um, when it comes to training and labor, you know, like it keeps your overhead. One of the biggest challenges right now is, is finding people with experience. But when you do one thing really well, they don't need a lot of experience. Right. They, exactly. They're just executing one thing. Sorry yeah. to. No. Well, you know, and the other thing is, is that, you know, with, with, with stickies is, is, you know, that point of differentiation that you have to be. You know, whatever you do, you know, because I can remember having, you know, long debates within Canes about the five items. And at one point it was like, oh, we got to do salads. We got to do shakes. We got to do cookies. We got to do this. And it was like, can we just do like chicken fingers? 
you know, and we put together this whole program and, you know, went out and did focus groups and everybody looked at us like we had a third eye and they were like, why are you doing this? It's like, you're going to be just like everybody else. It's all about one love. And we were like, well, what is one love? And they're like chicken finger meals. And that was the first time we realized how well one love resonated with, uh, our customer base. And so I, you know, I think whatever it is, you, you, you've got to put that stake in the ground and you've got to defend it vehemently. And so, you know, I talk a lot of times about, cause you know, people come up and it's like, Oh, you should, you know, you should co-pack all your sauces. I'm like, you know what? <clears throat> I've eaten a lot of, I've, I've tasted a lot of sauces that were co-packed. They never get it right. You know, you just can't get it right because you can't get the love in the bottle um, that you get when somebody's making it in the back, you know, one batch at a time every day. And um, I think that's the difference. And so, you know, you've got to be, you know, you got to protect those and you got to fight for them um, and make sure that, you know, that you don't you don't give up that ground. So So, you you spend five days. With Jonathan Sherman, yeah. John Sherman, um, and I think that's about where we left off. Yeah, right and so I was because uh, you know initially I was just going to be a consultant, help them out, you know, kind of as they said, uh, help us to uh, not make the same mistakes that you know other organizations have made that you've kind of helped get through this process. And then um, we're sitting in a little cafe, hanging out, eating mussels and uh, drinking beer. And John's like, why don't you just join the team? And I was like, well, I'm not moving to New York City, buddy. <laughs> He's like, well, we can figure that out. You know, it's 2022, man. And it's just like, all right. You know, so I'm, right now I'm doing 10 days on, 10 days off. Um, uh, really like it. It's not, you know, it's funny because people are like, um, you know, why are you here? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm here because I, I love what you guys are doing. You know, trust me, you can't pay me enough to do that. But, you know, I, like I said, you know, when you look John in the eyes, you can see he's, he loves that concept. He loves that brand. Um, and he'll do anything to make it successful. Um, and he desperately wants to grow it. And, you know, so I, just because I'm a bit of a romantic, want to help him do that yeah. and uh, so where was where was that concept where was stickies when you came on what were the first things you identified where, what's their vision where do they want to be what's their goal well they want to grow um, and they're you know and you have you know a lot of people say that well we want to grow this and it's like okay well you know, why do they want to grow yeah why do you want to grow it and where are you going to grow it and you know does it make sense to grow it yeah you know, and so at that time we had thirteen restaurants, uh, four in northern New Jersey and nine in New York City, uh, and so we started looking at it. And I was like, "Well, you know," I said. I started doing this analysis. I said, "What do you think our core demographic is?" I said, "Well, you know, twenty-five to thirty-four." I'm like, "Okay." I said, "You know, over the last five years, twenty, the the, the uh, ratio that that demographic represented in the New York population has dropped by twenty-five percent." I said, your core demographic is leaving the city quickly. I said, but here's where they're going. Winston-Salem, Raleigh-Durham, Asheville, Knoxville, Chattanooga, Huntsville, Alabama, Birmingham, why, why Tuscaloosa. Why is that demographic, the 25 to 35, going to those places? Well, you know, it's it, every place has a different reason. And I use uh, – it, it takes a lot of digging. And I'll use Huntsville, Alabama, and I, I'm kind of hesitant to share this because I don't want to spoil it for myself. But um, – I mean, because Huntsville... Everyone listening, take notes. Right, exactly. No, seriously. This is freaking amazing. Okay? Huntsville, Alabama. I'm like, why the 
That's why, I got, that's why I got Paul liquored up before we got started. <laughs> why would you go there? You know, and um, so uh, that's where we're moving Space Force. And so Space Force is going there, and so is SpaceX, and so is NASA, and so are the hundreds of contractors. That oh, I think I might have gotten fired as vice president of the Stickies. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and the thousands upon thousands of people that are going to go there for well-paying, yeah. you know, tech, aeronautical space jobs. Yeah. And those are people with money. Yeah. You know? And for us, that's our core demographic. You know? And so... Um, but who'd have thought? So, you know, the thing is, is you really have to, you know, you have to roll up your sleeves. And I came to this realization about that sort of part of the world in that uh, I went to, uh, shortly after I came back off of that math is mammoth journey, uh, as you might imagine, my wife was like, we have to spend some time together. It's like, okay. She's like, we're going to go to Chattanooga this weekend. I'm like, Chattanooga? She's like, yeah, they're having the cornbread, International Cornbread Festival's there. <laughs> does does your wife know <laughs> your impression of her, your wife? Oh, yeah. She does no, now. <laughs> she does now, yeah. And it's like, damn. So we go. And um, I was blown away with Chattanooga because Chattanooga was one of these towns yeah. where, you know, like Main Street was just foundries, you know. Like there was, because of the confluence of the rivers and the preponderance of ore and all of the right minerals you needed to, to to make iron and steel you know that's what they did and then poof it all ended and so the uh you know the town was uh was empty for a long time uh, real estate is dirt cheap but what people have done is they've come in and they bought up these foundries and you know from the second floor on up they've converted them to condos and apartments and stuff like that and and you know and, and office space and the first floor is all retail and restaurants and so it's got a really cool vibe right now. But you wouldn't know it unless your wife drug you to Chattanooga, Tennessee. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I've talked to, you know, so we've done a, a lot of work on sort of where we want to grow. And then I've talked to John. I said, you're never really going to know until you get in a car and you go drive all these territories. So we have a particular strategy and it's, you know, we bundle things together based on distribution because, you know, again, I'd rather have, you know, I'd rather deal with one or two uh, distribution houses than 15, you know, and if I can, you know, if I can run, you know, 50 restaurants out of a distribution center rather than five, it's a lot less work and a lot less headaches um, and take advantage of the scale of economy. So there's a lot of factors that come in when you figure that out. Um, and then you got to look at the uh, at uh, at the P and L, and you know, I mean, my what I'm most excited about is if you look at Stickies. I mean, they've been around. We just celebrated our tenth year um, in New York City, where we pay unimaginable rents. I mean, mind blowing rents and uh, mind blowing wages. Did those rents come down after the pandemic? When no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, so no. I mean, did, did has New York recovered as far as people? A lot of people got out. Have have those voids been filled with new waves of people? No, you know, because I think you know. Last I heard is that the, basically the uh, the office buildings down in you know in downtown New York City in New York City they're, they're about forty percent occupied. So you know, people just haven't come back. Um, 
Now, some people are starting to come back, but we're still at 40, 50% occupancy. So a far ways from, you know, the boom of, you know, in pre-COVID times when, you know, the, they were busting at the seams. But you look at those P&Ls and you say, okay, well, they work when you're, when you're paying $400,000 a year for rent. Can you imagine going to Huntsville, Alabama? <laughs> Yeah. You know, where you're paying, I don't know, 65K, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, so you, you also have to, you know, you, you, you've got to know where you're going. You got to know why you're going there. I'm a big believer. I use the term tier two markets. Um, I don't need to go to Atlanta and Houston and Dallas because I don't need to fight with the big boys. Okay, they got way bigger war chest, yeah. and I don't want to have to cut through all that noise. I want to roll into town. I want to be the big dog. Yeah, you know, and you can roll into Huntsville, Alabama, with stickies, and you can you can stick out. I'll tell you, <laughs> man, I think the, the, where there's tons of opportunity is where on the edge of the expansion west, on the edge of the expansion east. So, yeah, i.e., Iowa, i.e. Uh, you know um, what else is out there? Kansas, like on like in in that part of the country, yeah. on the edge of the plains, and then the other side, like Idaho, Idaho, and, and uh, that part of the world, Denver, and those those markets there. Yeah, I think that there's a ton of opportunity there. Those are the, in my opinion, like really great emerging markets, momentum markets that are just growing so fast. There's Absolutely. so much opportunity. There. I College totally towns. agree. I, you know, I'm a huge believer in tier two markets. You know, I want to roll into town. I want to be the big dog. I don't want to have to cut through a lot of noise. I want to be able to have a big impact. I want people to know we arrived. Um, and, you know, so I think, you know, I think that's it. And I think, you know, I mean, it goes back to, you know, a strategy of years gone past of, you know, let's look at college towns and let's just, you know, because you know, what's better than raising canes and, you know, than a four finger box combo when, you know, you're half in a bag and it's 3am. Um, I mean, it's pretty solid food for that. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I think you've got to, you got to become, you got to get really honest with yourself about who you are as a brand, who your customer is, and you've got to go in search of them. Yeah. Um, and you know, you've got to be willing to take these big, bold, moves um so we've talked sorry do you want to finish your train of thought yeah so you know i was well i was going to help you out with that eric you know we did talk about bold moves i'll talk about bold moves on a menu but you know we you know making a leap from new york city to chattanooga tennessee or winston-salem north carolina or huntsville alabama i mean that's a that takes some some brass ones um but as fast as you do it you know you've got to commit you got to be all in it's kind of like pointing your boat to the east and finding yourself a quarter of the way to Africa. Okay, <laughs> you know there are there are no plan B here. Okay, yeah. and so you gotta you gotta go to these places. You gotta make those jumps. You gotta have no plan B. Failure is not an option. Um, and you've got to make sure it works. Um, and I, you know, I think site selection is, is 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 once you figure out where your customers are and where you want to go. I think you know. The, the the actual place that you place that restaurant that first restaurant is super super important um but you know you gotta you know you gotta take some some bold moves and so we uh you know we just opened our 14th restaurant and we talked a lot about you know we have in comparison to say a raising canes we've got a pretty wide variety menu 
salads and wraps and sandwiches and all kinds of signature french fry thingies and stuff like that and it was like hey you know like some of this stuff only accounts for you know seven tenths of one percent of our product mix seven tenths <laughs> of one percent of our product mix. yeah that's pretty small and so when we uh decided to open up our 14th restaurant it was like dude let's 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 get ballsy here and let's focus on what we do and what do we do we do chicken fingers. Yeah. And um, so we did. It's in the name. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's the fingers joint. Um, and then the other thing that we did was we, you know, and I learned this at, at Cane's and I and I, uh, I confirmed it at Dat Dog is that, you know, newsflash, you know, as Americans, we read left to right, top to bottom. And so if you want people to buy a lot of one thing, put it in the upper left-hand corner. It will be your highest seller. And then the other thing we did was we did all combos. Um, and again, something, you know, we learned early on at Raising Cane's was, you know, if you put a picture of chicken, french fries, and a Coke on the menu board, people think that's that's it, that's it <laughs> yeah. you know? And the drink instances go through the roof. And, you know, it's pretty serious margin on fountain beverages. And so that's what we did was we created four combos and we positioned our highest margin combo in the upper left-hand corner. So if we're listening to this and we have a similar concept or we do something really well, we have a few other options we're trying to create. Like, what do you consider when making those combos? Like, what's how do you approach that? How do you choose the combo? Well, we looked at um, what we were famous for. Ticket fingers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, yeah. And I, so I think, you know, what, uh, what is, uh, most representative of the brand and, and true to what we do. Um, and then I think you look at, you know, how people might enjoy them and how you might steer them, um, you know, in another direction. I mean, you, I look at, um, you know, use that dog, for example. So that dog, um, in addition to sort of changing the menu around, we used to offer these, mammoth eight ounce portions of french fries with all kinds of stuff on them and they were great but if you just went into that dog you would just order a hot dog a hot dog you would not order fries with it because you could not consume both of those now if you and sam went in you'd get an order of fries and split it so i was like well you know tater tots are pretty hot right now so let's do four ounce portions of tater tots and lo and behold People started buying hot dogs and tater tots. And in fact, you would go in and buy tater tots. Sam would go in and buy tater tots. And then you guys would look at each other and like, and can we get a set of fries? We're going to split that too. You know, <laughs> and so our check average went through the roof. So I think you kind of have to look at it. You have to understand how people, how the consumer thinks, how they buy. Uh, you got to watch them. I mean, I would stand around in those restaurants and, you know, I stand around on a lot of stickies and watch people. Um, you know, watch your watch your customers, watch your employees, and um, you know, make decisions based on those observations. Um, and so it's it's kind of you know, and again, it was like, all right, we're going to get rid of the salads, and it was like people were like, we're going to do what? It's like, well, what if somebody asked for them? Tell them we don't make them. <laughs> you know, I said, first of all, we're far enough away that I doubt people will ask, and to date, nobody has asked. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, they only represented seven tenths of one percent of the product mix, and all those people are in the financial district, yeah. and they're still working remotely. I mean, I think uh, people feel the pressure. Like, they're like, "I need to have, I need to offer something." It's the idea that if if if, if five or ten people walk in 
then if that one person, there's nothing on the menu for that one person. Yeah, but you you want to make sure that nobody has the veto power. Yeah. But, but I think that's more common in casual sit-down environments where people go out in groups. Yeah. You're not going to stickies in groups like you are at a fine night. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Night, right? Absolutely. Like you're going for what they do best, right? And, and yeah. how much what, – what is the impact of narrowing your focus? What happens when you, when you bring it back to your core focus? Well, you know what? You can, you can um, reduce the footprint of your, of your restaurant to a degree. Uh, you can significantly reduce the amount of prep – work you do um and you can streamline the org- you know uh, the workflow um and you can focus on you know those things that you do exceptionally well uh, like how much just those how much were they throwing away of of, of just lettuce so with, it's with, it's with been uh spoon? it's too soon i think we're on maybe week three or four um of being open so it's really too soon to do the analysis i mean common sense and just sort of the the back of the napkin math will tell you that it's gonna you know we're gonna significantly improve cogs um it's just how much we're waiting to see so So what about earlier in the conversation we alluded to uh building the house before you move into it yeah i'm sure that's something that's happening right now too we talked about a lot of the details of uh, just kind of looking through the P&L, looking at the numbers and numbers don't lie and how can we, you know, focus on our core focus or reduce what we're doing to our core focus and what's your te- demographic, where are we going? But you got to build the house. you got to build the team. you got to build the framing. Is that a part of the narrative right now? Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the uh, very first things I did was I took uh, our VP of operations and we for eight days and we went and we spent half a day in every restaurant um, and we sat down and we talked to the general manager um, and it was kind of a neat experience Eric I mean we took some some financial reporting because those guys were all financial guys they had incredible financial reporting I bet and um, I couldn't figure out any of it okay because I, I got to tell you there's a handful of metrics that you need in this business that you can that you you need to focus on every what are those day. Of oh, everything from say, SPLH sales per labor hour, check average, um, labor labor cost as a uh, percentage of sales, um, your uh, your delta between theoretical and actual food costs, and I think if you focus on those things, that's like seventy five percent of it, you know, uh, if not more. And so I took some of these financial reports, and I was Is it another twenty five percent a secret. Uh, no, it's fixed cost. Okay. Yeah, rent, yeah. taxation, utilities, stuff you can't impact, you know, as an operator. Uh, but I took those financial reports, and I would be like, I'm like, dude, man, can help me out. What does this number mean? And nobody could read those reports. <laughs> <laughs> okay? And it was just like, my God. I'm like, okay. Like, my head's going to explode. Um, but I, we went around, and we assessed everybody. And, and <clears throat> you know, not... Uh, we had uh, significant opportunities, and this is you know this is something that I've seen happen in almost every small organization I've been a part of. Is what happens is one day you wake up and you realize that you have a lot of people in positions that they're really not qualified to be in, um, and those are tough decisions when you've been around for you know nine years and you've just emerged from a pandemic and you're like, hey, you know. I get it. I know what your title says, but trust me, that's not what you're doing. (laughs) 
you know, and, and there's no shame in this too. I think there's a lot to be said. You no, don't know, I, you know. In all honesty, I mean, some of these people, people, I went loyal to you. I went, you I went when we were, so we're doing this trip, this eight day trip. And so I don't know, at some point halfway through people realized what was going on. And so they're all talking to each other. And one of the last two restaurants we went in, we went into this restaurant and this poor kid, he's, he's sitting in a booth and we walk in, he's like, Oh, I have been waiting for you guys all week. <laughs> and, you know, you kind of got the sense like he slept in that booth. Okay. And um, a young gentleman who was thrust into an opportunity, um, ill-prepared for, ill-supported, and he knew it. And he'd look at me and he's like, man, he's like, "Where's my relief? I'm afraid of my employees <laughs> yeah. because he's like, you know, he was, he had just turned 21, but, you know, emotionally he was like 16. And then he's got all these, you know, 30 and 40 year olds and he's trying to tell them what to do. And honestly, they were kind of like, we're going to do what we want to do. And so he just couldn't, he was just petrified. And so he was relieved. And, you know, when I sat down with him, I said, Hey, I, you know, I owe you an apology. I said, we shouldn't have put you in this position and, uh, we're going to make it right. And trust me. And I will tell you that kid, if I, if you look on the spectrum of improvement, he is, he's a, he's a rock star. How'd you make it right? Um, I basically was going to, we're going to hire you a GM and you're going to just continue to make your own salary and that we're going to find somebody that's going to teach you how to do this business. Uh, but you know, the beauty of it is, is I haven't been, had to do that. It's just by having that candid conversation with him in you. and telling him that um, his numbers have improved dramatically um, and he gets it. And it was what we did was we found out how to speak to him, you know, and really sort of speak to his heart. And so nobody had ever because remember me talking about the financials, like what the heck am I looking at? Well, once we broke down some of these KPIs and we created this tool, I call it the weekly operating report. And it's basically, you know, built on the premise that every day if we, so at the beginning of the week, we write a plan for the next seven days. This is what we're going to do in sales. This is what we're going to spend in labor. This is what we're going to spend on food, da, da, da. And every morning we update it and it's either red or green, buddy. Green is good. Red is you got to pay attention to something. And so I'd sit them down and say, listen, if you're off on sales, <clears throat> focus on the top line. Go uh, go cut up some chicken fingers and put them in little uh, cups of sauce and stand out on the street corner and hand those suckers out, you know, and try and drive some business because you're only off, you know, $150. Mm-hmm. Okay, now what was happening is 10 days after the end of the period, they were realizing that they missed their sales for that week by $3,000, but it was fruitless you know you couldn't go back and fix it so the premise is on this weekly operating plan is that if you know where you're at if you have a plan to be successful and you evaluate your progress every day throughout the week you can make some small changes what gets measured gets minded yep absolutely and that gentleman loves numbers that he can understand Mm -hmm. and he can sort of figure out like oh my god this is how you get this number this is what it means. So, so sales for simplif- labor hours, productivity. Okay, sweet. <laughs> so by simplifying the numbers, which was one of the things you did that kind of helped him see it clearer. Yep. 
Yeah. And uh, um, yeah, and he and it, his entire attitude changed. He went from feeling lost uh, to being hopeful. Anything else that's worth bringing to the surface of today's conversation regarding what's going on with Stickies? And I know you're in it right now, so you, you can't get too detailed. You're, you're new to the team. You don't want to, you know, I don't want to pry too hard. Yeah, I want to no. respect that. Yeah. Uh, but anything that you think is worth bringing to the conversation before moving on, taking another break, and thinking, going, getting out of the, the world of Stickies and thinking more ho- holistically with what's happening in the industry? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think. Um you know, I think the one thing is, is, and I say this a lot, is I firmly believe that as owner and operators, we all know the answer. We're just sometimes not honest with ourselves, you know. And so we know what's important to the brand. We know what's important to the consumer. We know whether or not we got a good egg or a bad egg. Uh, we know whether or not we're headed down the right road or the wrong road. But sometimes we don't want to get honest with ourselves. Yeah. And so all of the all the answers are within ourselves. Um, we just have to have the courage to be honest with ourselves and to take the risk and to move it forward. And I think you know, Eric, I I, I just believe that that's um, that's uh, that's key. That's essential. And a lot of times, you know, you would sit around um, with people, and you know, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, one time I had a small consulting group and we worked in higher ed. We helped colleges and universities incorporate dining services into their master plan. And uh, American University of Washington, D.C. in Washington, D.C. was a client that we were trying to, to get on board. And so we go and we tour the campus and we're looking at the food. And uh, one of my partners was the song and dance guy. And uh, so we go, and we're sitting in this big conference room, and, you know, there's like five people from American University, and there's, you know, our group, and Rick is doing his song and dance. And um, I blurred out, I said, you know, I said, if they would just stop wrapping that tuna sandwich in saran wrap, they'd probably sell some. And the VP of finance looked at me, and he says, I think about that every day. You all are hired. <laughs> you know, it was one of those things where it's like people, you know the answer. Get honest with yourself, yeah. you know? And so I just believe that that's, you know, that's that's a key. And, and listen, and don't forget the number one rule. Your crew members matter. Yeah. They're yeah. the most important asset in that entire organization. Do not forget them and do not let anybody forget them. Yeah. Paul, we're going to take one more break and then we're going to get kind of Ariel talk holistically about the industry, where you think the industry is, uh, how it's evolved from when you got into it into you know, whether it's good or bad and where we're going. I would be really interested. Sounds to, great. To Looking forward to perspective. it. We'll be right back. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. 
Fred will be leading the training, supporting you and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant. But during this no cost to you 60 day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time, these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. I don't need to tell you that it's harder than ever right now to be a restaurateur. The cost of goods are going up. Labor expenses are going up. People don't want to work in the industry. Anybody who had experience has gone on to different verticals or different industries. And we are just stuck with a lot of people who are very green and how, how do we increase sales if nobody knows how to sell? Well, you empower them with the right tools. And one tool out there that you need to know about is called SRV, which stands for Study Restaurant Variety, created by Roger Bodwin from Restaurant Rockstars, a name I'm sure you recognize for his multiple appearances on the show, and his co-founder and co-creator, Zaylin Jacobson, who you'll be working with. This is a tool that will help your team memorize your menu, your uh, your culture, uh, everything, anything you need to train them, your entire training manual is now in an app and accessible anywhere. And really what it is, is an interactive learning tool. And it's a great way to invest in your team and to make them feel valued. There's a lot of data supporting that. This is how the next generation of professionals prefer to learn. So if you need a tool out there to empower your staff, to train your staff, uh, to, to give them the knowledge they need to be sales stars, then check out srvnow.com click the link that says request a demo and that will bring you to a page where you fill out your information the very last field make sure you let them know that restaurant unstoppable sent you their way they will pay us a commission of one thousand five hundred dollars if you use that link and you you sign up with them and i just have to say thank you in advance we're trying to take restaurant unstoppable to the next level and this is one way we can do that by just spreading the word about these tools and uh, I believe in what they're doing over there. So you're in good hands. Uh, thank you in advance. All right. Do it now. We are back. And one of the things I'm trying to do here at Restaurant Unstoppable is, you know, we're, we're here to inspire. We're here to empower by sharing knowledge. You've definitely inspired us today. You've definitely empowered us today for sure with sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. Um, now we're going to talk about transformation uh, and, uh, you know, what is your perspective on the industry? I mean, you got started in this industry when you're in your twenties, teens, teens, 15, 1970, um, Jesus, 1977. So we're talking what? 40 plus years in the industry, yeah. 40 plus years in the industry. You've seen the evolution of the industry. You've seen the transformation of the industry. Uh, what are your thoughts on where we are today based off of where we've been? Is it good? Is it bad? Where are we headed? Are you excited for it? Are you worried? Um, 
No, I think I'm excited for it. Listen, it's it's a totally different industry today than it was in 1977, and 1980s, 1990s, even the early 2000s. Um, you know, you, you it it's kind of interesting because, you know, back in those days, you know, nobody got into this business because, first of all, the chance of failing was significant, and the margins were tiny, 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 and so. It was, you know, it was a lot of old school folks. And, um, you know, and then we went through this process of where, you know, everybody wanted to be in this industry. And uh, in this process, when was this, do you think? I want to say probably in the, in the 2000s, early 2000s. And everybody wanted to be in it. And everybody thought it was easy. And people were throwing insane amount of money at it. And... I would just sit there and shake my head and it's like, you know, on a good day, the bottom, bottom line, you might get 10 points. Why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, and, you know, people were like, well, you know, if we could do this, you know, we could scale that and we could, you know, uh, leverage this and da, 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 da. And it's just like, you don't understand this industry, do you? <laughs> and so a lot of kind of, people jumped in with lots of money and then a lot of people jumped out with not much money uh, and um, you know we're kind of back to uh, I want to say uh, folks that are um, being very strategic about putting money into the business into the industry um, I think it's a neat time I mean I look at I got to tell you if uh, if you're if the lights are still on today, props to you. If you survived COVID, you got some swagger. Okay, I mean, and I don't care how you did it. You know, if you're still around, props to you. God bless you. And so, uh, you know, I think what that did was that you know sort of taught us to uh, to steal ourselves and to. Uh, uh, be prepared to to take on the storm and 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 honestly do whatever it took. You know, you saw a lot of people do a lot of crazy stuff um, just to tr- you know just for a buck because that buck made meant a lot. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, fought tooth and nail and they were desperate. Whereas pre COVID. You know, things were kind of humming along pretty good there, you know, until, uh, you know, late 2019, early 2020. And um, I think people got, you know, maybe a little complacent uh, and then reality set in. And, um, you know, like I said, for those people that have made it to the other side, um, and I still don't think we're there. You know, I mean, there's it, it, it depends geographically. Um, you know, I think there's some markets that we're still, you know, like I said, you know, at best, I think in New York City, occupancy is, you know, 40, 50%. Long ways away from 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you've got other areas where you go and, you know, in the south, southeast uh, that are just, you know, booming. I mean, yeah. go to, I went to Charleston a couple months ago and was blown away. Charleston, South Carolina, and just the... The sheer number of places that you couldn't get into. Yeah. I think there's a, a good chance we'll be in Charleston maybe in November. I know we're yeah. going to try to hit the southeast Atlanta. And I don't know. Maybe I'll have so. to hook you up with Dave Lorenz and Mex One. Okay. Yeah. 
uh, really cool dude, really into surfing. You know, that's kind of like he doesn't do early morning meetings because if the surf's up, it takes priority. Well, I mean, I think that's a big thing that's changing right now too. Is people are starting to find that balance. Yeah. Uh, from what we talked about earlier, it's about the it's about the now. It's not about the destination. It's about yeah. living your life now and doing what you want to do now. Um, what about the future? Like, we're, if you could make a project, like if you could project, if you could make a prediction about where we're going, what the industry looks like a year, two years from now, what what concepts are going to do the best and what the people, you know, what, what are we doing internally with our organizations to survive? Yeah. You know, Eric, I would, you know, normally I, I don't want to rain on your parade, but, um, you know, sometimes a, a recruiter will ask me and they'll be like, where do you see yourself in five years? And I'm like, I don't play that game. I said, that way I'm never disappointed. I'm always surprised. Um, it's really hard to kind of figure out what the future, um, uh, has in store for the industry uh, just because we're still in such difficult times and you know depending upon um, the uh, financial pundit you you talk to um, it's not going to get any better any sooner you know anytime soon and so uh, what's I, not the industry is not going to be what's the, the economy okay the economy which drives the industry listen yeah. I mean people I mean well, I'll tell you, I can remember uh, being in a panic, you know, at Raising Cane's when we'd have to spend uh, $80 for a case of chicken. And today we're spending a 170 yeah. You know, I mean, and think about that. And because we always worked on really tiny margins. Yeah. And it's not like you can you can pass on a, you know, a 50%, you know, increase in cost of goods to your to your customer. You know, so you got to you got it's got to come from somewhere. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm uh, I think. Uh, we've got a long ways to go. So I'm going int- to just stop real quick because I yeah. think that's part of the issue is that we can't pass along the expense to our customer. And it's that mindset that's why the fuck can't we, dude? <laughs> like, I don't because I don't think they can. I don't think they can afford it. Uh, but why should the restaurant industry? Why should people working in the, the restaurant industry? Why should restaurant owners be the one to bear that load? Why can't the consumer bear that load? You know, I think I think everybody has to ha, has to share in the pain. But you know, Eric, I'll tell you, it's um, you know, it's um, I've been very fortunate in my life. Okay, and to go and 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 to you know have conversations with people that'll go into the grocery store. You know, you'll be sitting around. Uh, uh, you know, a table or a bar having conversations, and somebody would be like, "Hey, you know, do you see the price of pork at Walmart? It's really cheap." <laughs> yeah. You know, and so you know, so people are like making these decisions. They're migrating with people who would have never eaten pork a day, you know, before, you know, a day before in their life. Um, and we're always, you know, chicken and seafood. Well, chicken and seafood so expensive. They're like. All of a sudden, we like pork, you know, and it and, and it's it's not that you know it it could be any protein, and so I think you know I think the the challenge is is I used to think I would go back to you know May and June of this year, and I would say to myself, well, you know, it can't get any more expensive because pretty soon people are going to just stop buying shit. Well. It hasn't gotten any cheaper. Well, what's interesting is that it's weird because the consumer is requesting quality. We're starting to learn more and more about what we're putting into our bodies, how what we put into our bodies affects our health, our wellness. And the industry 
collective or like the consumer collectively is raising their expectation on what they put into their bodies, yep. the, raising their standards about what they put into their bodies. Uh, simultaneously, I feel like, you know, I, I mean, I don't, it's a, it's a, it, where is it going to, like, that's not, like, I think, I think really what the issue is, is there's a, a weird perception of the value of food. Yeah. And I think the restaurant industry needs to, to kind of move away and c- feel free to correct me. This isn't my, this is yeah. your opinion that we're listening to, but I'm going to share my opinion to see what, what you think. Um, so if, if the expectation we want to put better food, more uh, healthy food, uh, more cautiously grown food into our bodies, all that comes at an expense. And I think we should move in that direction. I think we went in a, the, we fucked the shit out of food for a long time. Pardon my language. Oh, yeah. I'm on my third beer right now, so it's coming out. <laughs> uh, and I think we need to get away from that. I think the consumer needs to know what the value of food is. And I think that the restaurant industry has been guilty for a long time for reacting to the consumer because we're it's fear-based. We're afraid. We're afraid if we don't charge what it's worth, the guy down the street is going to make it le- less expensive. Yeah. We can't compete with that. I think there needs to be a level of, of we're in this together. And if we as an industry, we as if we're going to survive this, we need to not try to fuck each other over and we need to charge what the value of food is. We need to respect what we do and the consumer needs to know, like, you want better stuff? You want, like, th- this is the value of food. Yeah. And what are you, where are your values as a consumer? What are you, like, what are you spending your money on? A nice apartment, gadgets, tools, uh, how many fucking streaming services you have? Yeah, exactly. Like, where the hell are our values, man? Yeah. Like, I'm getting worked up right now, but, but it's. I think we need to start acting on the consumer and influencing the consumer and saying we like we need to be influencers. So I think there. I, first of all, I think there are um, there are numerous types of consumers out there, and there's numerous reasons why people come in uh, into a restaurant. And we'll start at the at, at the very bottom where. They just need something in their stomach, mm-hmm. you know, and they don't care if it's, you know, if that beef patty was pumped through a, a tube and into a, the, a, a form and cast into the shape of something and grilled and, you know, that it has zero nutritional value. It fills the, it fills the hole in your stomach and it's super, super cheap yeah. because it's all they can afford. And I so I think those restaurants have to focus on, again, it's being honest with who you are and do it better than anybody else. And if you're just out there filling the hole in the stomach, great. And then there are those people that are very cognizant about the food supply. You know, I mean, I talk a lot about a lot about you know some of the craziness in the world these days. And and I, you know, I mean, people spend some time processing plants. You know, uh, learn about smart meat and stuff like that, and you'll realize kind of like how fucked up the food supply is. I mean, the things that we do to food is just astounding. I mean, and, you know, like I remember uh, there's been a number of occasions over the last, you know, decade or so where, you know, we've messed around with the DNA and we nicked something, and so now we've got, you know, 10 million sterile chicks, you know. And so chicken prices go up because we got 10 million chicks that aren't going to become broilers, you know, yeah. um, because we're monkeying around with that shit, you know. So people don't understand that. So I think there are there's a customer base that does understand that and they appreciate it and they don't want to put that 
stuff that's been monkeyed around with in their bodies. And I think you're right. I think they have to pay for it, mm-hmm. you know, because it isn't cheap. Yeah. You know, so I think you've, you know, you, I think you have to, you have to understand who your consumer is and why they, what, what the value proposition is uh, and why they come to you. And I think you have to do that extremely satisfy that extremely the consumer well. drives the market if the sure. consumer tomorrow says you know what i'm willing to shave like I, I don't need all these other things in my life really what i care about is what i'm putting into my body and i know that's like if we start educating people i feel like I, i'm i can be kind of woo woo and like naive sometimes i kind of recognize that i'm hopeful i'm wishful i'm optimistic i'm praying for you i know man I, it, but i feel like if it's going to change it it it, it it's going to come from us forcing it like the the restaurant industry the the bar industry stem from leaders in communities if you go back to like the 1800s i know i'm going back like i think we forgot who we are and what we do and and how we lead and we become like this low tier like industry where we're the second largest industry in the world we have influence we have power but i think we need to start communicating and really start like you know lobbying for change in educating people yeah, yeah. and um there's so much well think we, about the role we play in a community i mean you brought up the 1800s i mean you go back to the 1800s 1900s you know restaurants aka pubs were the center of the community yeah you know that's the point i'm trying to make yeah, yeah. and um you know, and that was... If you were an owner of a restaurant in 1850, you were the mayor, man. You were. You, you were. Like you controlled the narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you could shape what went on in that neighborhood, yeah. hands down. Yeah. Um, and I agree. You know, and I think, uh, man, I'll tell you, wouldn't it be nice to, to return to a day and age where um, we all came together to bake bre- break bread um, in peace with one another and to appreciate each other's differences um, uh, and be kind and loving to one another. Uh, because, you know, they all, in the end, it's just like my conversations with Victoria. We all either lose or win together, you know? Um, you know, I can't, af- really, I can't afford for my neighbors to fail because if they fail, I fail. Um, you know, we can't f- afford for our, you know, our fellow human beings to fail. Um, because if they fail, we fail. You know, it's, it's not like winners and losers. We're all either going to win or we're all either going to lose. And so I think, you know, man, it would sure be nice to to think that down the road we would uh, we would come together around the uh, the dinner table and break bread, um, and be able to to sort of you know facilitate that and be a, a, a part of it. But I think you know, I think it, I think it's it's tough. I mean, like I said, um, you know. I, Geez, I'm 60, so I've lived through a number of recessions. Um, you know, some I remember, some I don't. Um, this one, you know, kind of, uh, I'm a little worried about it. I'm hopeful, but, you know, I'll tell you, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I was a little worried about this one. And um, just the length of it, you know, because we can suck it up and play hurt for 12 to 18 months. We're good at that in this industry. Um I mean, Christ, we survived the pandemic, um, which is finally over. I'm cl- glad to hear that. Don't uh, jinx it, Paul. I know, I know. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, just being able to, to do that, it would, um, you know, if, it, if we can, if, um, 
you know the powers that can be can 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 do what they can do to to limit the length of this recession and and minimize the the pain and suffering on uh, you know the greater population i think you know we'll get through this i'm a little worried about if it lasts you know 24 to 36 months what that looks like you know on top of an industry that's been uh, incredibly stressed as a result of the pandemic and it really has to do with all of these things that have sort of lined up one after another um i I do believe this i think that if if what you're saying happens and this comes true that we're, we're going through a long haul of, of tough times. I do think we're going to come out of it better. And oh, I, yeah. I think that it's going to, it's the, the people who do survive are going to, if you do survive it, man, I think it's going to be a completely different landscape. And I think yeah. it, it, there's a lot of hope for those people who, who do the right things, who do buckle down, who do like, I, I'm, if you're one of those people, man, I think it's going to be a good world. Yeah. No, I'm a, I have, uh, I have tested that philosophy of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. Um, I'm a firm believer and I've gone out in various ways to try and, and improve that. And, um, by virtue of the fact that I'm present here today, obviously it's true. And, um, so I do think that what doesn't kill us will make us stronger. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people in this industry that shouldn't be in this industry, if I'm being honest. That too. Yeah. And I think, I hope that this, sucks so bad that those people get the Oh yeah, we're out. definitely going to we're going to weed out the chaff for sure. <laughs> yeah, man. And there's going to be some consol- quote quote consolidation. Yeah. That was used to be the word um you know, there's going to be some consolidation. We're going to weed out the weak ones um and the strong will prevail and I will tell you, you know, when we come out on the other side it's going to be freaking awesome. Yeah. Um and um you know, I think um you know, I I I uh I I subscribe to your theory that, um, you know, folks are sort of migrating to middle America um, and that we're going to find that markets like Iowa and Kansas and Colorado and uh, Nebraska, Nebraska, Wisconsin, I don't know, all those Huntsville, Alabama, you know, that those are going to be places where, you know, there's going to be opportunities and, um, you know, so I do. I, I agree. I think it's. I do believe that's uh, that's where it's at. Did anything not come out that you were hoping that would come out in today's conversation? No, dude. It's just great to see. I mean, I can't. I tried to when I saw you in the parking lot. I was like, God, man, I'm trying to figure out how many different cities I've seen you in. Um, it's always Orleans, great to catch New up. York, and we're in what Gulfport? We're in Gulfport. Right yeah, I mean, we're on the sailing vessel, Bad Captain. Yeah, man. I mean, come on, drinking beer called the Bad Captain. I know. Uh, from, I got uh, the text message, and I was like, Sam, we're going to Mississippi. <laughs> I was like, pack up. Let's make. This Sam's happen. like, where is that? <laughs> Do we? Uh, can we drive? <laughs> so it's you know it's funny. I mean, you talk about things. I mean, this was uh, I was living in New Orleans, and we had a, a beach house here. And uh, so we came out here to flatten the curve. And after, you know, and you, we've kind of talked about this, you know, understanding what's important in life. And after three months of waking up in the morning and walking the dogs on the beach and sitting on the patio, looking out over the Gulf of Mexico, drinking coffee, you know, I finally turned to my wife and was like, why the fuck would we go back to New Orleans? <laughs> and it was just like, okay. So we sold, put the house on the market and sold it in four days for, you know, a lot more than I thought we were going to sell it for. And, um, so, uh, you know, different pace of life and, uh, enjoying it. Um, you know, kind of living in the now, uh, cause we don't live forever. Yeah. So, um, tradition here at restaurant unstoppable before we wrap up, uh, I'm going to have you call somebody out who's somebody who's not on, I haven't talked to who you know of that I should talk to. Oh, 
Well, I'm not going to call him up, but uh, I want to introduce you to Noah Glass from um, OLO. And um, I met Noah when he founded GoMobo, which is the predecessor to this. And um, Noah Glass has an incredible story of this, you know, using a smartphone to place an order and the seamless integration, uh, you know, and because we're talking like, literally the early 2000s you know like when when Noah was first telling me this story he had a blackberry dude <laughs> you know with like the little you know the keypad the keypad yeah. and uh i don't know how that messenger actually worked i think it was like all emojis or something i don't know it's crazy but um yeah so you said olo what i think also goes by olo olo yeah, yeah. um and uh, but just he's got an amazing story um, he was, uh, well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to blow it for you. Um, but you know, the, the takeaway there was you can't have a plan B, you have to be all in. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was the, that was the contingency on, uh, getting funding to start GoMobo yeah. and, um, God, that son of a bitch did it. Yeah. So if we listen to this, con- this conversation, we've listened to you, we're inspired by you, we're motivated by you. We're motivated by you. We want to continue the conversation with you, maybe even hire you to do some consulting. I don't know if that's on the table with you being with Sticky's full time now. I don't know if you're still consulting on the side. Yeah. But if we're interested in connecting, we want to connect with you. What's the best way to connect? Well, the best way to connect with me is uh, Paul, P-A-U-L, at Tunerman, T-U-E-N-N-E-R-M-A-N dot com. Yeah, feel free to reach out if I can do anything for anybody. Yeah. Uh, appreciate it. And I have to say, I'm sincerely flattered and honored uh, that you you reached out to me and you asked me to come visit you. And you know, this is a friendship that's forming. And yeah. uh, when I get a text message from Paul Turnerman, I go, "Tell me when, where." I'll yeah. Well, and, dude, uh, you're doing incredible stuff. And and listen, I've loved. I mean, obviously, we've known each other for a long time. And and you and I have had uh, just as many deep conversations off air as on air and um i uh, i appreciate what you're doing for Thank the industry you. and uh, the effort that you're that you're making and it's i mean listen you're not doing it for the buck you're doing it to try and make us all better and uh, what's not the love about that you know i so think thank you the obstacle is the way man you know mm-hmm. i believe in that fullheartedly and um, you know, I get more reward from knowing that uh, it's the, the North Compass, you know, of the values there you go. and the trust that that drives me. So yeah. thank you for recognizing that. Right. And uh, There is no questioning, my man. I love you, brother. You are unstoppable. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure this won't be the last conversation. All right. Cheers. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Paul Tunerman. Always love connecting with you. It's always a treat when we get you on the show. Awesome stuff today. And we have a lot of things going on over at Restaurant Unstoppable podcast. We are trying to commit to 100% on-site interviews. And the reason for this is because, I mean, I'm on the road. I'm connecting with these people. Um, It's better in person. And... Uh, there's tends to be relationships that develop and I feel like we're trying to grow the YouTube channel and I think I just want there to be a narrative. I want my, my work to be journalistic in nature. And when you show up on the doorsteps of these restaurants, they have a tendency to show up for you. Uh, they open their networks. It's just the better way. And I'm super excited for it. And it's made possible by restaurant systems pro. They are our road trip sponsor and I'm super grateful to have them in our corner. Uh, so 
aside from committing to 100% on-site interviews, uh, we're also growing our YouTube channel. So actually starting with this episode, we actually recorded this episode on Paul Tudorman's yacht and we have video of that. Uh, it's a sailboat. It's a really nice sailboat. Uh, I highly recommend you guys go check out that video to see uh, where we were recording this. And, and going forward, we're going to have a video component for every episode we do. And it's going to be a shorter 30 minute like version of the interviews highlights. So if that's more your style, be sure to head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable uh, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're trying to grow that thing to 10,000 subscribers in the next year. We need your support. And then also we're bringing the network back. I mean, technically it never went anywhere, but when I decided to go to 100% on site interviews with videography, it kind of absorbed a lot of my bandwidth and a lot of my attention. So the network took a back seat. Now we're trying to build that back up and uh, we're going to be going about it a little different. One of the things I've realized during all these interviews is that you can't build a business that hinges on you. You have to build it on systems and processes and you have to extend trust. So we're going to be doing that in the network. There's people I've, I've come to trust who I want to extend my platform to and have them contribute regularly. So we're going to have uh, live experts ask a pro at least once a week going forward live in the network. And uh, that's just one of the many things we're going to be rolling out. Super excited for the future. Cool things happening here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, That's it for today. Thank you guys so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.